Did I tell you my... It's not really my story. It's Mammy Nolan's story. The Colin Farrell sticky toffee pudding story. Uh, no. Okay, so you've been holding on to the best stories for, for our last few episodes. For our last few episodes. <laughs> this is this goes back 10 years. No, it's, it's something that only happened recently. Okay. And I could have sworn, maybe I said, because we have a thread for when we watch Bake Off. Oh. And I thought I would have maybe brought so, it up in our message thread about Bake Off. I've been on holidays for the past two weeks and I've been intentionally avoiding that thread because we haven't caught up. So I didn't want any spoilers. Ah, so you don't know. Oh. So if Jürgen has, you know, Lebensraum's someone else's table, I don't know about that. Apo- no, Jürgen is. Apologies to our German listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jürgen for life. I want to get a Jürgen tattoo on my back. Like a prison style massive mural of Jürgen on my back. Like his face? Uh, um, no, I want to get, because he was wearing a t-shirt in the last episode, a red t-shirt that made him look more like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> I don't know if he's very Winnie the Pooh-ish. He's so he's softly very spoken. Pooh, and I mean, that, I mean that in the most like complimentary way possible. Sure. I have nothing but fondness for Winnie the it's Pooh. It's not like, you know, um, President G and Winnie the Pooh? Or, or, yeah, or, no, it's not like yeah. that. It's, yes, that's, that is not the parallel I wanted to make. This is very much a wholesome, wholesome comparison. Anyway, that's besides the point. My Colin Farrell Sticky Tuffy Pudding Mammy Nolan story. <laughs> so, uh, that's going to be the title of our third album. <laughs> so, uh, my little sister Ashling, you know, she's a costume designer. It's always so funny right. when you say little sister Ashling who's like in her 20s with a house and stuff. <laughs> but you know what I mean yeah. uh, She She's a costume designer And she's working on a film out in, That's shooting out in Ackle That's um, God why am I blanking on his name uh, He did The Guard uh, He did In Bruges Oh yeah uh, those two, sh- brothers. Why am I blanking on his name uh, Martin McDonough Jesus Christ um, So it's a Martin McDonough film With Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson Shooting on, out in Ackle and uh, Ashling's working in the costume department on it. And it's a fairly small. It's not like a big, massive Hollywood production. So they're all quite close knit over there. And uh, she's been hanging out a lot with Colin Farrell. As you do. And getting to know him. Sorry. As you do. As you do. And uh, apparently he's got a hell of a sweet tooth. So when Ashling came back to Kildare to visit my man da one weekend, they were sitting down having their Sunday dinner. And ma'am, because it had been ages since Ashling was home because she was out filming on this island. Um, Ma made her sticky toffee pudding. It was like a special treat, right? And Ashley was eating, going, "Oh, this is so good!" And like Ma's sticky toffee pudding is like next level, yeah, 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 out of this world type stuff. I can believe it. Yeah, uh, and Ashing just kind of said in an offhand way, "Oh, Colin," because she's just on first name terms now. Uh, <laughs> Colin would love this, uh, and Ma was like, "Well, you should bring him some." She was like, no, I'm not going to bring him some. Will I? Yeah. Okay, I will. And so she packaged up some sticky toffee pudding, brought it all the way back from Kildare to uh, Ackle Island off the west coast of Ireland and uh, gave it to Colin. Uh, And then later on that night, got a text, a WhatsApp from Colin of an empty bowl going, destroyed it. (laughs) Tell your mammy you said thanks. And so ma and dad recently drove all the way to Ackle to, to spend the weekend out there with Ashton while she's filming. And ma made more sticky toffee pudding for him. And I'll show you here now. I have a picture. Can you see that? That is Colin Farrell <laughs> with standing an empty with bowl. a picture. An empty bowl. Because it can't and be full with Colin Farrell over there. <laughs> a sticky note on it saying, uh, from Mammy Nolan. And uh, he took that picture and said, send that to your man. Ah. So Colin Farrell is a fan of my ma's sticky toffee pudding. That's adorable. 
Isn't that sweet? Yeah. He seems like a nice guy. I've heard he's quite a nice guy. And apparently why he eats so many sweets is because he doesn't drink because he's an alcoholic. So apparently right, yeah, yeah. he subbed it into that. But that must be really hard if you like fucking love sweets, but you have to be like above Hollywood man. Well, this is it. So apparently like he... You constantly like while they're out filming over there, he's constantly running and cycling around the island, just trying to work <laughs> off, sweat off all the sticky toffee pudding. Got, <laughs> I've got to do another seven mile run because of that sticky toffee pudding. Worth it, <laughs> running into the sunset. Yeah. And why does Brendan yeah. Gleeson not want any of your mass sticky toffee pudding? That's a really good question. I don't know. I don't, that man seems like he would love a sticky toffee pudding. Uh, maybe a man hates him. I don't the know. The only story I've heard about Brendan Gleeson is I heard people giving out leaflets for Fine Gael, a party that we've talked about on this podcast, who are a little bit right wing in Ireland. Um, they were giving out leaflets for the party in Malahide where he lives and he walked past and he looked at them and he like glowered like and just walked on <laughs> <laughs> um, I cannot imagine being on the receiving end of it. I know. Of a like, I just imagine Mad Eye. He probably had the Mad Eye Moody fucking eyepiece <laughs> on him. <laughs> a jolly, jolly glower, to be sure, if ever there was one. Oh, man. I really want some sticky toffee pudding now. Yeah, I know. Me too. Why? <laughs> Clearly, I know where I am in your mass pecking order. <laughs> Be- beneath Colin Farrell. Look, we're all beneath Colin Farrell. <laughs> you want to be beneath Colin Farrell? Do you want me to show you that picture again? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, our our cold number day, our cold open days are numbered. They are. I mean, you did step up a level now. It's going to be hard to sustain that. It's like, ma, you need to bake something for another celebrity. (laughs) We're going to be going back to just talking about dogs that you've seen in the park, which are great. Which are great. No, I haven't done no, that in a while. There are no mo- mothers giving no. <laughs> sweets to celebrities. Uh, our old roommates who have since moved out and got, have gotten a flat with a garden have adopted a dog. It's a very adorable dog. Uh, and she's precious and she's adorable. And, and she's her. Romanian. And she's Romanian. Yeah, she's a Romanian street dog that's been rescued. And she's for all, like, for the fact that she was raised on the streets of Romania... And then um, rescued by a, 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 a an animal sanctuary charity thing, and then adopted by Craig and Jill, and shipped in a van over the course of two nights to the UK in the dark. She's incredibly chill. Like she she has every right to be an absolute just nightmare, and she's like the chillest dog. She like wow. she potty trained herself without the guys having to train her. She just like <laughs> as soon as the door opened, went outside, found a spot to to poo and pee in. She's been doing it ever since that same spot. She's got her shit together. Quite literally, yeah. She's <laughs> she's counting her lucky stars. Yeah. She's living the VIP life. Anyway. I'm still distracted now. I just, I want to, next time we record, I want my, I want to be able to tell a story about my uncle making garlic bread for like, <laughs> you know, What's, Jay-Z or something like that. No, it has to be an Irish. She's like, an Shay, Irish like Shay-Z. <laughs> Shay-Z. Seamus <laughs> Zed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll do that or like my aunt yeah oh yeah she made some falafel for i don't know brian dobson right <laughs> oh my god irish news anchor <laughs> and doyle stole an apple tart from him as window while it was cooling <laughs> she floated there she on floated the, on the stink spell <laughs> god damn it and doyle Oh God, yeah. Anyway, like we said, we're 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 coming down to the last few final episodes of what I'm. So this is a place where we'd usually 
you know, ask you if you wanted to become a member of Headstuff Plus, that kind of thing. But we're not going to do that now. We're in the wind down phase. So I guess, I guess if you want to take that money and maybe uh, donate it to Troker or something, maybe, yeah. you could, maybe you could do that. There's some synergy <laughs> for you right there. But instead, instead of asking you for monetary investment, we just want your your words and your brain and your idea, your thought ideas. Thought I, what's your, five years of this, you think I'd be better? Your <laughs> you're so succinct. I, your thought ideas. What? Just imagine just that you're making a pudding for Colin Farrell and then it'll flow out to you like no end. <laughs> I just, what's wrong with me? You take over, Steve. I just need to look. It's look your standing the, desk. It's all out of whack. Oh uh, yeah, well, we talk about it in the interview a little bit. I'm not standing desk now and I just, all the blood has rushed to my feet. All my podcasting blood is going away from my head to my feet. Look, all we're saying is you don't have to give us money anymore because we're, you know, we've we've made enough to retire and build that. Um, we bought an island, <laughs> not Ackle Island, a different island. Um, Colin Farrell could probably run around it in about 45 minutes, but yeah. it's still a good island. Granted, it's, so. it, is it an island or is it just like a convergence of garbage that the various different currents of the Atlantic Ocean have pooled together into one just smelly lump? Who's yes. to say? Who's to say? We are. Yes, it is. It's that. But we bought it. <laughs> it's the What I'm Toby. If you remember our What I'm Toby episode, yes. we finally the first. did it. So look, what we're saying is we don't need the money for Headstuff Plus. So what we want is your opinion. I think I worked it out earlier. We have about seven episodes left-ish. Ish. And we have only f- three ideas. <laughs> we got, now, look, that's... We've three ideas written down. If we if we put our collective noggins together, th- I'm sure our we thoughts, could, our, th- our thought thinkers, or what did you say earlier there? <laughs> our headache our th- pictures. <laughs> so uh, anything like that, definitely. Um, one listener did get in touch, and she gave us an idea that we are definitely running with. Yeah, involving a past guest who speaks Irish. I won't say any more. Peter K. Sorry, no, that's too specific. <laughs> P. Cavanaugh. <laughs> Mayor um, PK. <laughs> um, apart from that... I call him Punky we, Kong. <laughs> that's a good name for him. <laughs> Punk, Mayor Punky Kong. Look, let's just get down to this shit. We are talking development aid. Yes, we are. We are indeed. And we've got a f- like an incredibly qualified guest. An incredibly qualified guest. I am actually shocked at how qualified the guest is that we got. An it incre- is incredible. Yeah, so succinct, so articulate. It's, it's one of those things where, and this has happened a few, quite a few times, I think, over the, the five years we've been doing this, where, while the person's talking and they're saying they're smart words. You know what I mean? Like, they're smart. They're smart thoughts. <laughs> they're, they're, they're brain <laughs> they're, pictures. They're brain, brain pictures out of mouth hole. <laughs> they, when they make word good... And make word good, uh, ideas, good topic, relevant. But when she's talking, it's just like looking at her going, you're so goddamn good and smart and I'm so glad you're in the position you're in. And then from that, what are you doing talking to us? And then I blush <laughs> and I just get like really self-conscious that this person is clearly, now, their time is so valuable and they're so good at what they do that I feel like, oh no, I'm doing the world a disservice because they're now channeling that all of that effort and intelligence into me. I am the vessel for this. Like, don't deserve it. Don't worry, Richie. It wasn't for you. She knows it's for the listeners. So look, anyway, we're That's not t- we're talking around and roundabouts. We yes. got the CEO of Trocra, Quiva Tabara. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk to her. But before we do that, I am going to talk absolute pony in my version of what development date is. Um, All right. But just please remember that even though I'm going to talk vaguely generally and kind of geopolitically because that's that's what i know yeah um quiva is going to come on and tell us some 
really good facts about a specific charity and how it works. Sorry, a specific development aid agency yes. and how it works. Yes. Okay, well, let's get started then. So let's start with what am development aid, Steve? So I stole this from Wikipedia because it's actually fucking brilliant. Right. <laughs> development aid is aid given by governments and other agencies to support the economic, environmental, social and political de- development of developing countries. So... It is similar but different to humanitarian aid, which is money that you pump into crises areas very specifically. But like Quiva will tell us about area, the two are quite linked these days, mm-hmm. especially because a lot of humanitarian crises are effectively political crises caused by humans in the same way that development aid can be used as a salve for. Sure. So yeah, that's development aid. So is this... Is this- an old thing, the idea of development aid? Is it a new flashy thing that's already come up since you and I have been on the scene? Uh, or like, what, or is it somewhere in the middle? Uh, it's probably somewhere in the middle. So some form of development aid has been around for as long as kind of nation states have. Like we were talking like, let's say 19th century, because the Brits, the Brits went at it for a good while. You know the way the Brits used to own a lot of the world? With the, with the way they had their, their map coloured pink how in many, Africa. How many of our episodes... The catalyst for it has been the Brits went at it for a while. It's, you know, <laughs> dot, 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 it's, topic. <laughs> it's not our fault. We're Irish. <laughs> it's not the Brits' fault either. We're Irish. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Brits used to have a lot of holdings around the world and a lot of places that are still considered very developing countries. Um, most of India, a lot of Africa, um, Asia, those kind of places. Yeah. But as part of their colonial program, they were doing what we could effectively call development aid now. They were pumping money from... Britain into these countries to develop them in terms of um, infrastructure, economic structure, and and to a certain extent, political structure. Mm -hmm. Although ultimately, with the huge, big, glowering caveat that they are doing this to milk all they fucking can out of these areas and take it back in the form of profits and stuff. So to to genuinely call it development aid in the sense that we have is today is not correct, but also in a way they were kind of doing the same kind of stuff. So... The development aid system that we kind of still have today, that really got going after World War II. Right. Kind of for two reasons. One reason was the Cold War. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that after. But the first reason I want to talk about is the international organizations. So before World War II, the countries didn't really get together in clubs. They kind of tried the League of Nations thing. That didn't really work. Most of the time, you just had a load of countries walk, like sailing around individually doing their own thing. After World War II, we talked about things like the UN before. There's organizations like the IMF, the International Monetary Funds. You have the World Bank. Yeah. You have all sorts of other sub subsidiaries of these groups. They started to be able to pool resources together from all these other developed Western um, rich countries and could distribute them across less developed parts of the world to try and build them up and to get to the cold war part of it is it was it for no reason probably not it was probably to make sure they stayed in their side of the fence as opposed to joining the soviet communist side of the fence who were right so it wasn't strictly altruistic there was like some ulterior motives in there okay um yeah like that's big broad brush drawing of what was going on but then again at the same time is any development aid ultimately altruistic remember that friends episode where phoebe was trying to tell someone that you can't do anything you can't do a selfless good deed yeah you can't do a selfless good deed there's always a reason why you're doing it i mean when we come to trocra that's probably not true yeah (laughs) pretty much what they do is yeah that's pretty fantastic yeah altruistic but 
Condition, conditionality is a big part of development aid. It has been forever and it still is now. And we'll get into that a bit further when we talk about some of the programs that are going on now. Mm-hmm. So where where does the money for these kind of initiatives come from? Is it, is they it come, governments? Is it like, is it us? Is it you and I? Is it like where? Yes, both. Okay. That's basically Governments, the money. you and I, those are the three, the, the holy trinity of development aid funding. Effectively, the money from governments comes from you and I as well, because governments get their money from taxation. Sure. And then most countries will have a portion of its budget each year dedicated to development aid. Obviously, if you are a country who has a lot of problems, you're not going to worry too much about that. But if you're a Western country, you're, there's there's been this, there's all sorts of international agreements that countries have signed up to yeah. that, that mandate a certain percentage of their money go to it. Because they're only international agreements, there's no international police to give them a whack over the head to say that they have to do it. Most countries don't match it. Um, and some countries are better than others at doing it. Mm-hmm. But most of the money comes from governments. Mm-hmm. And then a large portion also comes from the, the development age, the development aid um agencies raising money themselves through donations right from everybody and do we have any you know we'll, we'll hear some specific examples relative to Troker when we get to the interview but like bigger picture do we have any examples of like big successful projects that came from stuff like this yeah um, I got one successful project from a recent one actually um, the UK set up a program in Kenya to support drought hit communities and um, they started the project in 2014 and this is an interesting one because it effectively meant that they were going to distribute <laughs> I realize I have written down 143 pounds, but it was probably Whoa. meant to be. It was probably meant to be 143 million pounds, right? And they distributed this money in in the particular areas of Kenya that were affected by droughts um, through cash, direct cash transfers. They they gave out um, cash to about 600 thousand people, and the project stimulated so much economic growth and infrastructural development mm. that it is one of it is one of the first programs that when it ends in 2024 is actually slated to be taken over by the Kenyan government because they're so happy with how it's going. Oh, great. Yeah. So the idea that, and again, Quiva talks about a lot, that idea of like bigger sustainable stuff that isn't just flash in a pan, slap yes. a bandaid on it, like big long-term change is harder, but yeah. So, but when it does work, it's, that sounds fantastic. Okay. On, on the flip side of it then, <laughs> are there any like notable failures just to give, give us, kind of sense of balance and context to there are absolutely loads right. and most of them fail because the money that is given to the countries is squandered um locally through corruption um yeah. basically the money doesn't get to where it needs to go it gets siphoned off beforehand this is a problem it has been a problem for a very long time and when countries like the united states and other western powers were doing it as part of their cold war strategy they kind of didn't care because the whole point of the money was to keep the leaders happy as much as it was to develop the local areas. Right. But as that became less of a priority, obviously they're trying as many, all agencies is try, are trying their best to make sure that the money actually gets to where it's supposed to go. Yeah. Um, but it's still very difficult because you're working with countries that are not very well developed. And obviously like it's catch 22, isn't it? Mm. The development aid wants to develop countries democratically, politically, but they're not there yet. And the people who are in control are going to try and grab the money before it gets to where it needs to go. Right. Right. So that's why a lot of them fail. But in terms of one big fucking stupid project, I found Mm. one from 71. Um, It was an initiative by the Norwegian government to try and develop a fish processing plant at a lake in Kenya. Again, another Kenyan project Mm. um, that they wanted to try and, incentivize the local Turkana people to fish and then process the fish for export. But the Turkana don't eat fish. 
they've never fished in their in their existence. Okay. <laughs> so they built this plant, they opened it, and up it worked for a few days, but then it shut down because the people are like, What the fuck is a fish? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, We don't want anything to do with this stupid thing. Yeah. They like they had built massive freezers and they like they they were they couldn't even get a, a good source of water for it to come into. Yeah. So the thing just cost twenty two million dollars and then was shut down after a few days. Wow. Okay. So it's just like a good idea on paper that just wasn't based on any sort of And like you can kind of see why the Norwegians are like, geez, we're great at fish. Like mm. we, we make lo- let's go share our fish knowledge. Oh look, a big lake in Kenya. There must be fish there we can yeah. teach the local people how to do it oh yeah. very well meaning but yeah. you know missing a big thing there you can see why we've talked a lot about the the dealing with like the systemic like issues and dealing with the politics as well as the the aid side of things and like everything needs to be a fine balance it's not just yeah. like throwing money at a problem you need to like have you know creative problem solving for creative problems exactly. um what a, so the, you see a lot of like this is a bugbear of mine and it was one thing I suggest to you that we talk about but like the idea of these programs that send like young westerners abroad to like build a school and you know for their they can take their Instagram posts and that kind of thing like are they ultimately is this am I just being cynical are they actually helping anyone are they like a good way of spending this money and this time to, to help people I'm not qualified to answer that necessarily but I think it's probably both Mm. It is both is both useful and not useful. So obviously it would be better to pay someone locally to do that construction work rather than send an idiot from from Massachusetts over. Yeah. But also that idiot from Massachusetts probably rate about ten grand to go and that ten grand can be used well. Yeah. So it's it's cash twenty two. Like you are those initiatives can be used to generate attention and money for the projects. Mm. But then also there's a bit of like, well, we also have to placate to this 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 knob who wants to go over yeah. and do it. It's that white saviorism stuff as well. Like it's, I think I, that's part of it. But yeah, yeah I um, guess I know just because uh, I, I, the reason it's it's in my mind is because do you remember like oh God, how long was it? Three years ago, I went to Tanzania at that time for a wedding, and we stayed with um, Kate's cousin who works in the Tanzanian embassy. And yeah. one of, that was one of his gripes is that like so like he worked a lot with um, local nonprofits and and helping them mobilize on the ground, and he said like oh, we don't need like tourists coming in who want to have their name on a plaque building a yeah. school it's like we need we need local teachers we need you know like that stuff intrinsic systematic change here on the ground we need local doctors local teachers who are going to fix their own problems like lift them up so that they can fix their own problems like you you kid you don't know how to build a school but you want to come over and build a school and we have to take time to train you to build a school and then you're not going to be good at it and yeah. all this, when really it's just like we just need petrol for our jeeps so that we can get you know food out to people it's not sexy but you know it's 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 what's needed it's just that performative side of things that i don't know maybe more of an issue today than maybe it was years ago uh, yeah i don't know if, yeah I always have a, I have a, I have a skepticism and a cynicism of thinking that the things that are wrong today are the same things that were wrong before. I'd mm. like to know if there was like an increase or a de- decrease in the number of people that are going there since Instagram. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if there has been a decrease just because the charities themselves are like it's not useful. Yeah, yeah. But then I we do. just see more of them because they're they're sitting in front of us on Instagram. True. Uh, but enough of the that kind of the bad side of things. Like moving on to like good, useful, helpful, actual impact. Um, you don't need to look any further than our own classrooms in the trocra boxes that were in them every Lent 
when you're younger and you're growing up seeing those trocra boxes and this forms such a big part of your your classroom and we'll talk about this for people who don't know what trocra box is in the in the interview but for a lot of irish people it's their first touch point with what is actually a much much larger larger organization than you might actually think they're more than just a receptacle for some loose change that then gets sent off to to poor families they're so much so much so much more in terms of big scale impact in developing countries and like we said earlier i can't believe that the ceo of trocra came to talk to us and not only that she said i'm raging we weren't recording uh when she said it but she said we were funny she said we were funny (laughs) (laughs) there's the approval the approval we sorely sorely crave (laughs) anyway look we'll get into it so i started off by asking quiva how did she end up as the ceo of trocra Uh, I was just talking about I've, I've got a new standing desk and I'm trying to find the perfect height for podcasting. This is my first time podcasting while standing up and I still don't oh, know wow. what, what height to dial in. Yeah, it's probably going to be better, you know, feel better though because you're standing up while you're speaking. So I'm projecting to the back of the theatre. Yeah, yeah. great. Feel, I'm great. trying not to shout actually. I've got the back <laughs> of a 98 year old piano mover. So I feel like <laughs> finally getting a standing desk is both going to help my back and hopefully my podcasting projection. So. Great, great. Sounds good all around. Yeah, you'll be the first. You can testify to it. <laughs> so yeah, we'll just get cracking. Um, thanks for joining us, Quiva. So you are CEO of one of Ireland, if not Ireland's largest development day charity. Um, so how did you end up in that job? Um, okay, well, to get the answer to that, you have to go all the way back to 1977. You could go further back. Uh, but but I won't. Um, so in 1977, my engineer dad and my courageous mum decided that it'd be a great idea for my dad to take a job in Malawi, um, which at that time was a highly impoverished country under a dictator in southern Africa. I was seven. My brother was eight. I had two sisters who were even smaller. And we spent a year and a half living in a very remote part of Malawi. And, you know, while I was young, it had an absolutely lasting impact on me. And I guess it was that sense of kind of common humanity that stayed with me for the rest of my life. And while I went through my teens back in Dublin, you know, kind of campaigning on what was topical then, which were things like nuclear power and and the environment, Subsequently, by the time I moved into my 20s, I had become very aware of global justice issues and I was very active in things like the fair trade movement um, ongoing environmental activism. And then I ultimately did a master's in development studies in UCD. And while it's not necessary to have that kind of third level um, education to get into development or to be useful in development and humanitarian work, it certainly helped. It gave me a platform. It gave me a more um, rigorous, I guess, framework for thinking critical thinking around development and global social justice. And then I ended up in Trocra because I was working on a fair trade campaign. And I essentially asked somebody who would subsequently become my boss if she would accompany me to a meeting with Ivan Yates, who was the Minister for Agriculture at the time, on bananas and getting fair trade bananas into Ireland. She graciously agreed. We got to know each other. She asked me, did I want to volunteer for Trocra? I spent a summer doing that and must be 23 or 24 years later, here I am. Wow. See you Jeez, and I'll, I'll start with bananas. That's right. <laughs> it's an excellent superhero origin story. Uh, so yeah, you, you mentioned the Trocra. Um, so could you take us through the, the work that Trocra does? I know it's it's more than just, it's not just like throwing money at p- people who need money, as uh, you know, people might think charity is. Can you take us through the breadth of work that Trocra does? 
Sure, sure. And the first thing that you mentioned there is the word charity. So, you know, Troker is a charitable organization, but our model of work and the model that works in development and humanitarianism is far from what people consider in terms of traditional charity. It is very much about achieving transformational change with people in their own communities and in their own contexts. So Troker's model is a social justice model. So from the very time we were formed in 1973, We've always worked in partnerships with local NGOs, local civil society organizations who themselves determine what are the critical issues to work on. They understand what are the drivers and enablers of change in their own context. They have close connections to the communities. So Throker's model is very deeply embedded in that local partnership way of working. Many people would be familiar with Troca's emergency work because that what's, that's what tends to dominate in the media. So when there's a disaster, be it a hurricane, be it you know a huge food insecurity crisis, such as one that's currently building in East Africa, then you see the likes of Troca Concern Goal in the headlines, very visible. That's a really important part of our work. So our mandate is to respond to people's needs in terms of life-saving needs. But fundamentally, it's about questioning the structural drivers of poverty. So why do people end up in critical situations where their lives are at risk, either from things like drought and floods, which in the main, you know, come back to political issues or things like democracy and human rights. So, for example, in a number of the countries we work in, the vast bulk of our programs is actually around enabling people to hold their government to account to create better, more thriving democracies where people's rights can be protected. Um, so our model is consistently thinking, OK, we need to make a tangible impact in people's lives. That is our mandate. But those impacts need to be lasting. And for that to happen, you need to tackle the structural causes of injustice at local, national and global level. So we also work, for example, on policy, advocacy, education, campaigning in Ireland in order to influence global policy by working through the Irish government and the European um, institutions. So it's all knitted together. There is no one single element that works on its own. You know, obviously working with an individual person, a family, a household, a community is critically important. But you have to work through the structures as well and change the structures for the long-term change to happen. In terms of funding, um, the, the broad question I want to ask here is how Troker gets its money. Is it from individual contributions or government aid or something like the EU, as you mentioned? But also, since this is an Irish podcast and we are two Irish boys raised in this country, we can't not mention Troker boxes. So um, if you could explain for our listeners that aren't from Ireland um, what Troker boxes are, kind of... I think that they're one of the most culturally important Irish things that are it's, around. In, in my head, it's as like as as present in my childhood upbringing as like the Morbegs were. <laughs> it was like Troker boxes. If I were to go back and just like focus on the iconography of myself growing up, Troker boxes is one of them. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I mean, so overall, just to say Troker is funded roughly a third, a third, a third, if I put it like that. Now, obviously, it's a lot more nuanced than that, but about a third of our income comes from the Irish public. Good bit of that comes to Troker boxes. And I'll come back to that. About a third comes from the Irish government and about a third comes from other governments and international institutions. Um, so we have that spread of funding, which is important, of course, in terms of sustainability. But the funding that comes from the Irish public. So, you know, your average person in the street, your average child in a classroom is really important because that in some way gives us our legitimacy within the Irish community. You know, and we're an expression of people in Ireland who donate to us of their solidarity, of their you know, kind of will to also help create a better world and to engage in that. And you don't just do that through funding organizations. Certainly, I hope 
People don't just do that in that way, but it's certainly one way that people can do it. So the throat group box has been with us since 1973. Yes, many people, if not most people growing up in Ireland, going to a primary school will remember, you know, that moment when the throat group box arrives. And it was always the oldest child in the family got to take the throat group box home yeah. and got the excitement of opening up and, you know, kind of putting it together and my brother was just one year older than me so I had to wait seven years before I got to take my throat grip box home in sixth class I always felt there was a gross injustice there that something should be done about that wait, is this the real um, reason you're the CEO of throat grip, just to that's spite right. your brother. Like, I want my throat grip I want the first throat grip box every year uh, um, but you know what the, the throat grip box performs a function it's not just about and we're working hard on this it's not just about a receptacle to 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 gather money like it's a small box there's a limited amount of scope on it but what we're trying to do in the Toker box is you know development education it's kind of like bringing the experience of another family into a family's home and not in a way that evokes pity not in a way that evokes like you know oh my goodness those poor people no in a way that evokes solidarity and compassion because we work with people who are incredibly vulnerable living in really fragile situations and that's the honest truth but what we try to do with the throw box is evoke curiosity so who is this child what is their context so the teachers in schools get a lot of educational materials that they can download from the web and they can take them then they can take the children in the classrooms on a journey around well what's the context that this child or children because sometimes we feature children from two or three countries what's the context they're growing up in why are their families struggling? So, you know, one example in recent years was a woman in Honduras who's a human rights defender, an environmental rights defender. And her context and that of her children was that large corporations were trying to push them off their land, land that was sacred to them. They're indigenous people. They lived there for over 200 years. And they were being removed forcibly from their land. And that's a severe injustice. So then the deeper you dig, you kind of understand, well, how is that corporation connected to us here in Ireland? So that corporation is headquartered in Europe. OK, what do they do? What do they produce? How can we maybe, you know, look at the world in a way where we see we're actually all connected? So the Toker box, it is an icon, but it's not just about the money. It's about changing the way that we think. And we really try hard. We really recognize that Ireland is a much more diverse country now than it was when I was growing up, for sure. And, you know, there is an issue there about some people using the toker box in a really negative way that we're really trying to challenge. Um, you know, we've heard some stories that are heartbreaking about, you know, young people of colour growing up in Ireland and, you know, somebody using the toker box and saying, is that, you know, somebody in your family? Horrific stuff that Jesus. should never happen. Yeah. But what we try and do is say, you know, look, these are real stories, they're real families, but we'll always present anybody that we are working with, with agency and with dignity. And we're trying to evoke curiosity. What is happening? And what is the what is the global structural system that is enabling a situation to continue? And then what are the multifaceted ways in which I can engage with that campaigning, education? Yes, of course, funding. We can do nothing without the funding. That's the truth. Um, but it goes well beyond funding. It's it's interesting you mentioned about that that kind of shift away from pity towards curiosity and solidarity because like looking at it from like a brand perspective, I remember growing up and seeing advertising from multiple development organizations that are, that, that would evoke, that were very emotive, a lot of emotive advertising, the, the format of like black and white videography with swelling music. And then, and then I noticed that there's been a shift to your point. That's more about solidarity, like you say, and more about curiosity and more like bespoke stories about these people and like how, how, 
the development they were the development aid they receive can go towards like benefiting them in a very impactful way was that a was that a very from behind the scenes was that a very um, uh, intentional effort to try and shift the narrative that way from like a brand perspective and how has that like affected how people interact with these organizations yes that's deeply intentional and really you know it still has it still has a way to go. I'll be completely honest, you know, but um, deeply intentional. So about twenty years ago, Docus, which is the Irish NGO Coalition or Alliance, kind of an umbrella body for NGOs, came out with a code of conduct on images and messaging, specifically to address those, you know, kind of horrendous stereotyping portrayals of people, you know, as victims. When the reality is. Every single human being on this planet has agency. Nobody should be presented as a victim. We're all people who have equal rights and equal dignity. So the DOHA's Code of Conduct and Images and Messaging has been really important in making all agencies, development agencies, really look closely at what we're presenting as images into the world. So that has generated, in Ireland, that has generated a different way of presenting images. Also, there's accountability. If any agency isn't presenting people with dignity and, and abiding by the Code of Conduct, then there are sanctions there. You know, They do have to fulfil that standard. Um, What I would say is that also as we become, you know, as we live in a more diverse world, a more diverse Ireland, then, you know, the legitimate questions around representation are being asked of us. And I think they are. It is right that they're asked of us and it is right that we're held to a standard. Of course, we have to demonstrate that there is need and that people here who wish to donate and do other actions can support that there is a role for them. However, it is not a complete dependency. It should never be dependency. So, no, it's been very, very intentional. And I like to think that Trokra has been part of the vanguard in kind of pushing that intentionality and kind of pushing the sector to really consider portrayal and representation and ensuring that dignity and agency are at the centre of anything that's presented. You mentioned earlier um, the different kind of projects that you work on, both in terms of immediate disaster relief, which I guess I think is humanitarian aid versus development aid. And then you have obviously the more longer term projects that you guys want to work on to try to develop the countries, as you were saying, in terms of democratic values and economic structures and those kind of things. But how do you weigh between the constant never ending disasters that just happen by being humans on this planet versus the, the want to, to 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 put some money into that is it is it a constant push and pull between wanting to make sure you keep the keep enough money being pumped into the development things versus responding to disasters as they happen you know that's a really interesting question and one that the sector i guess over years and years has grappled with but the reality is that most of the humanitarian emergencies that we address now are are not so much that sudden onset natural disaster. They are typically long running conflicts that are deeply rooted in social injustice. So, you know, in many ways now we see both that kind of development, long term development, long term investments to enable communities to live, you know, kind of more in more self-sustaining ways with less conflict, etc. That the development and the humanitarian are brought closer and closer together. Conflicts are now much more likely to last a long time. People who are displaced nowadays compared to, say, 20, 30 years ago are likely to remain displaced for a long time. So, you know, the the immediate response to an emergency, yes, of course, life-saving response, food, shelter, water, protection from violations. Yes, of course, you need to do that. But almost from the beginning of any nominally sudden onset disaster, you have to consider 
How long might people be displaced for? What are the political structures? Is there a political complex behind the reason why they have been displaced? And invariably, the answer will be yes, whether it's Haiti and an earthquake or whether it's East Africa and a climate crisis or whether it's Afghanistan and a political crisis. There will be political realities that mean that this is going to be a long running crisis. So the best way to approach it is with a long term mindset. One of the things that we encounter, which is very difficult, is that in the, the humanitarian sphere, funding is very short term. So, for example, during the COVID crisis last year, the height of it, when it was novel, you know, Trokra and other agencies like us got a lot of humanitarian funding that was less than 12 months in duration. So you're given money for six months to do something short, sharp, that has a positive impact on people's lives. But if you keep on getting funding for six months, 10 months, 12 months, you cannot build up those structures to actually have the long-term impact. So one of the things that we advocate for with donors is, and successfully with the Irish government, who is one of the best donors, I say without question, is to say, we need to take long-term funding approaches to humanitarian emergencies because they are also development, complex development issues at play there. I don't know, does that make sense? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Uh, you mentioned COVID there. Uh, you know, it's 2021. Everything we talk about comes through a lens of COVID but at some point. I love how you said when it was novel, <laughs> because <laughs> it has been two years. <laughs> yeah. A novel two years. How how has COVID affected the your, the work um, Trocra and, and other similar organisations are doing? Like, have you noticed an impact from, say, countries looking inwards to sort out their own internal crises before looking externally? And has that had a knock-on effect in your your guys' day-to-day and how you do your work? This has been really interesting because I'd say at the public level, the opposite is true. So, and this is this is across the world. So I engage with my counterparts from Australia to the US throughout the whole of Europe, et cetera. And we've all had the same experience, which is that in 2020 and 2021, the public who provide us with funding have done so out of a sense of solidarity, out of a sense of like understanding that we are all interconnected. And COVID, you know, there's a couple of things that are really clear about COVID. Number one is that like, it's a global pandemic. It's affected everyone, but not equally. So I think people in countries like ours, where we're now over 90% vaccinated um, and still struggling, you know, still struggling with the virus, people recognize that, you know what, in countries that have not even reached 5% vaccination yet, they are still back there in kind of March, April 2020, with that huge degree of fear, the economic impact of lockdowns, the physical impact, for example, domestic violence, gender-based violence of people being stuck, unable to move, unable to get out of difficult negative situations. So I think people's sense of solidarity has really shone through. And we see it here in Ireland and, and we're well known for having that value. But actually, my colleagues across the world are seeing it as well. But the other thing is that I think, you know, the hard political reality as well is that governments respond to their own constituents. So, you know, I mentioned over 90 percent of our population, thankfully, have been vaccinated. But in the countries that we work in, the rate so far is less than five percent of the population of sub-Saharan Africa has been fully vaccinated. Some countries, it's even lower than that. This plays out in very concrete ways for us as Trokra. So in many of the countries, if not most of the countries we're working in, at least half of my colleagues, our staff, most of whom are from the countries that we work in, have had COVID. Many of them have lost close family members as a result of COVID. Um, and it is even worse amongst those who you know, live in more difficult situations. So COVID is rampant outside of wealthy countries, rampant. And the notion that we can insulate ourselves in that context is 
you know, should anyone hold it, and I don't believe anybody serious minded does, would, would simply be diluted. So we need to address faster and much more equitably the issue of global vaccine equity for people in developing countries. So a number of dimensions to that. So one's production. So production needs to be ramped up. Um, what really impacted on our countries and the colleagues um, and the communities that we work with is the fact that when the Delta variant hit India, the supply from India, which was largely the supply towards the UN's COVAX facility that was supporting poorer countries, effectively remained locked within India for quite a long period of time. So what we were hearing from our colleagues on the ground was that maybe one of my colleagues managed to get a first dose or their, their elderly parent got a first dose but then there was no supply for the second doses. And they would have been in the lucky cohort of the small percent that got any dose at all. And so a huge gap. And it's only now that we're seeing slowly vaccination starting to increase in those countries. So that profound global injustice, I think, has opened people's eyes that ultimately we have responsibility because it's not, you know, it's not just that it's in our own interest, but it is so horrendously unjust that healthcare workers, for example, my colleagues working as doctors, clinicians, midwives in Somalia don't have access to the vaccine. Healthcare workers in you know, hospitals that we support in South Kordofan, which is a remote region of Sudan, don't have access to the vaccine. That is just simply unjust yeah. and it doesn't make sense. So, you know, COVID has shone this light. First of all, the public response, incredibly generous, incredibly connected intuitively to our responsibility for each other. But at the same time, the political reality is that the resources have flowed towards the wealthier countries and towards people protecting their own populations. Um, you mentioned earlier DOCAS. Um, it's, it sounds like a, a federation, a super club of Irish charities. Um, if you could just briefly take us through what it is, its history and the kind of work that it's doing at the moment. Yeah, sure. No, DOCAS is an excellent institution. So DOCAS is like the umbrella body for development and humanitarian NGOs in Ireland. And Ireland is, you know, um, a huge contributor in terms of development work overseas. Like we we definitely are overrepresented in terms of our interest in development, our interest in humanitarianism. And subsequently, you have a lot of Irish NGOs, large and small, working in that area. So what DOFAS does is it brings us together for a number of purposes. So one would be around standards. So, for example, the charity sector has gone through, you know, a lot of harsh times when the reality that we needed to have consistently high standards of performance and accountability was brought home through charity scandals. So DOHAS has constantly pushed and supported and enabled its members to adopt and comply with high standards. And that's really important. That accountability piece is important. But DOHAS also exists as a forum for people to learn from each other. We do a huge amount of collaboration. So, for example, when I was working in Malawi, Trokra Goal Concern, the Irish Rule of Law, which is a much smaller NGO, we would have regularly collaborated together, sharing ideas, coming up with better programs, better work. So DOHAS facilitates that learning and that sharing. But also it gives us, if you like, a united form, a united voice to engage with stakeholders that are important, like the Irish government. And it allows the Irish government then to go to one place to speak with, you know, the, the aggregation, the, the the group of NGOs that it wants to deal with. Justice so it works League. really well. And Justice League is great. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So it works really well. And it's one of a number of umbrella bodies of NGOs, like several exist in the domestic facing environment as well. And DOCAS then would coordinate with the likes of The Wheel or Charities Institute Ireland um, or Carmichael House. Um, so the charity sector in Ireland is very well organised and much bigger than people often realise. Like 7% of the working population of Ireland 
are employed by the charity and community and voluntary sector, um, which people might not be aware of. But it's staggering the contribution that, that I think people make. So from this chat, it, Ireland's being painted in a pretty favourable light in terms of its its work in this area. Why do you think it is that Ireland punches so far above its weight? I mean, I think it's not that we're always perfect. No, far from it. And I think yeah. our record on development aid kind of speaks to that. So, you know, we, t- we talk a good game, you know, <laughs> but, you know, ultimately... Um, is is the the demonstration of it is our commitment to overseas development assistance in large part. Now, um, happily, this year's budget, which has just been announced, has seen a significant increase in Ireland's overseas aid budget, which is positive, but is also fulfilling a promise that the government has long made. So most recently in the programme for government, the government, the incoming government said that it would commit to reaching the UN target of spending 0.7% of gross national income on overseas aid by 2030. Now, you might think 0.7%, that doesn't sound like an awful lot. It's not. Like it's seven cents out of every 100 euros. At the moment, or until this year, we've been spending about three cents out of every 100 euros. That's three euros out of every 10,000 of income earned in Ireland get spent on overseas aid. So Ireland is slowly trying to pull itself back up towards that target. Um, but the fact that we've never met it and the target has been there since 1970, it does speak volumes, you know. Now, what I would say about Ireland is that with the work that we do do, whether it's NGOs, missionaries, or the government, is very based on our values and our experience as a country. So Ireland is known for having integrity and for speaking out sometimes on the difficult issues that not everybody wants to deal with. And also for not having, I guess, if you like, mixed ethical approaches to aid. So Ireland's aid is always untied. It does not come with strings attached, such as, well, we'll give you aid, but you need to trade with us. Or we'll give you aid, but you need to, you know, some of the kind of more brutal dimensions of it, make sure that migrants don't come in our direction. You know, Um, Ireland's aid is... It has been consistently ranked for many, many years by the OECD amongst the top performers. Um, and I think that's very deeply rooted in our values. And I would go all the way back to the, you know, the missionary era for that, um, where, you know, people really appreciated the work that was done and still is done, carries on being done, being done by Irish missionaries. But it's also that sense that this is part of our responsibility as a nation. We have a history. It feels like a long time ago when you're young, but the older you get, the less far away it seems. The history of famine in Ireland and its impact, its deep and lasting impact on our country and on our psyche, you can't get away from it. It's a little bit hackneyed, but you can't get away from it. And when I've worked overseas, um, it's something that my national colleagues, whether it's in Malawi or Zimbabwe or other places, would have always said that they said, like, you know, when we listen to and we learn about Ireland's history, we understand why you take the side of justice no matter what. So that's why Ireland, for example, was so strong on apartheid South South Africa, is so strong on Palestine and the injustices there. Um, And I think, yeah, it's rooted in those values. It's rooted in our history. Um, When I was doing research for this, I noticed that you recently had an article in the journal talking about the UN Food Summit. Um, So just to get some like... um, idea of a, like a, a big practical project that you would have been working on recently. Can you tell our listeners what was this meeting and um, what was agreed and what could have been done better? Okay, <laughs> I'll try to make this uh, reasonably short and accessible. Um, so the UN Food Summit was a very important, remains a very important initiative by the Secretary General. So essentially what it was, was a recognition that, you know, food is, food is something which is systemic in nature. So The production of food, how it's produced, how it's distributed, who gets access to what type of nutritious food, who doesn't. All of those questions have systemic answers. The way we consume here in the West is 
typically highly unsustainable and highly demanding on planetary resources and often comes at the cost of human rights violations in other contexts which are hidden from us. So palm oil production, for example, in huge plantations where people have been pushed off their land, suffered various different violations. That is an industry which is known for its poor practice. and, you know, tea, coffee, bananas, sugar, these large over the years, like I mentioned, I started in fair trade over the years, those industries, those sectors have had to comply with higher and higher standards because they've had more scrutiny. But the food systems basically says food needs to be produced environmentally sustainably, economically sustainably and socially sustainably. Um, the reality is that large corporate you know, entities control a huge degree of our food chain. So the food that we consume and the food that is produced, but the vast majority of food that's consumed by people who are living in in poverty or living in marginal situations, it's produced by smallholder farmers who are under pressure all the time as a result of climate change and lack of investment and the destruction of biodiverse habitats, particularly indigenous people. So the idea was, okay, if you are going to look at food as something that is holistic and holistically sustainable, what do you need to tackle? So you need to make sure that environmental systems are more environmentally sustainable. What does that mean? That means less huge agro-industrial scale production that uses very heavy toxic chemicals that poisons the land for many generations. It means more sustainable forms of um, agriculture that values the traditional knowledge that people have. For example, knowledge around, let me take one classic example, orange flesh sweet potato. You've heard of sweet potatoes. You may have heard of orange flesh sweet potatoes. One of the most valuable, nutritious foods that you can find. And they're produced in many countries in Southern Africa and in Latin America, but have been undervalued by your standard, you know, kind of conventional agricultural chain. Um, And they are becoming more and more central in the kinds of agriculture that we are now working with small farmers on because they're very, very dense in vitamin A, which is hugely important for pregnant mothers, lactating mothers and young children. Um, So, you know, it's promoting local knowledge around what are the varieties that grow best are most nutritionally, nutritionally useful and have highest market value. And investing in those crops rather than saying, you know what, we can make an awful lot of money by just growing one monocrop, be it maize or some other monocrop that ultimately has a damaging impact on the environment. So the summit itself, as any of these processes go, is very useful in terms of surfacing a lot of issues. Um, Useful to a degree in terms of identifying some solutions, but it's the follow-up to the summits that really count. So countries have made statements, they've made commitments. The US, for example, made a big financial commitment, a financial statement about about commitments, but the follow-through needs to happen. So follow-through means investment in small-scale, sustainable agriculture, because that's the reality for the vast bulk of the people living in poverty, is that that's the kind of agriculture they engage in. Invest in that, make sure that it is agroecologically sound, which means that it is agriculture that actually nurtures the environment as opposed to depletes the resources that ultimately we depend on. Breaking that cycle, if you like, of destruction of the environment that we rely on for our food. And also from Throker's perspective, there's a big piece there around um, human rights and ensuring that corporate entities that are involved in food production at any point are held to account for potential violations within their supply chain. 
So just as 25 years ago, I was talking about bananas and violations in, you know, plantations in Central America. There are now standards there to monitor that. But this needs to be universal, if you like. And that needs to be applied to food systems universally. I love how bananas are a recurring theme across your career. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's one massive project you've just outlined there. Is there, as we kind of start wrapping things up in this interview, is there any other big projects you'd like to shine the light on or talk about or like that gets you particularly excited? I think one of the things that I really feel very passionate about because it's so important is gender equality. And, um, you know, many people would probably kind of go, oh yeah, give women a chance. Women, you know, (laughs) women do all the work. Women are important. But actually what's really important and what is most transformational is enabling women to have a voice in decision-making. So some of the work that I am most proud of is the work that we do in countries like Sierra Leone, which is a country that is still living a post-conflict reality, had horrendous conflict for for a long time, and also a very traditional country, you know, very patriarchal in its nature, where women are are not valued equally. And the work that we do enables women to go through a process where they become confident, first of all, to speak out in their own community. Secondly, then maybe to stand for a position of influence in the community and then potentially to go on and to stand for positions at national level, potentially as elected representatives. And this is a very long road, as any female politician in Ireland or anywhere else will tell you that Putting yourself forward for election to any position is incredibly difficult for a woman, and especially in a context where this is not the norm. So Tsoka supports women to go on that journey no matter where they are, if it is just that first step out of the household into the community decision-making forum, using the voice, feeling empowered, working with the, the whole community so that the community values the voice of women rather than disregarding it. Um, that is really important because it transforms everything. If you have women able to inform decisions with equal decision-making power and influence, then you transform entire societies. It changes the way people look at not just things like, do girls get to go to school and stay in school, but how are decisions made about the resource allocation? I think we can all see, we've seen in our budgets here in Ireland over the years, how they've become more gender sensitive and how that changes who benefits from decisions that government makes in terms of resource allocation. It is game-changing. So gender equality, we work on gender equality in everything that we do for the reason that that is systemic structural change. That sounds amazing. Um, thanks so much for taking us through all that. Um, if any of our listeners have been inspired and want to help Trokra and they don't know any kids to put a few pennies into a box for, um, what can they do to try and help out? Well, the first thing I'd say is like, it's not just about funding, though we love the funding. So, you know, you can go on our website, www.trokra.org. And of course you can donate and every donation is highly valued. And the, you know, we maintain a very high standard in terms of the proportion of donations that goes directly towards our direct charitable expenditure. That's 91% is direct charitable expenditure. But also we really encourage people to join in our campaigns work because again, it's only through political change that you achieve long-term structural change. So you could sign up to become a Throker campaigner, um, you know, sending emails, visiting your TD and constituencies. Um, and that is totally, you decide how much or how little of that you want to do. Um, you can also, if you're involved in community work, if you're involved in a school, you can ask for somebody to come and to visit and to talk and to explain the work that we do. And again, to help people kind of reach a stage where it's not just it's a charity, I'll put money in a box, that's the end of my responsibility. No, it's more about how do I learn to be a citizen in solidarity with my fellow human beings around the world. So yes, funding, fantastic. Anybody who can really appreciate that, but there's other ways, campaigning, mobilizing, activism, all of those things are equally important. That's about it. Well, thanks very much, Quiva. We really appreciate that. It's absolutely fantastic. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. 
Yeah. Like we, I, I, we were talking about how great she was after we stopped recording. And I was like, that, that lady is an example of you're like, yes, we want you in charge of something like this. Yeah. You are so succinct, so intelligent, so articulate. It makes sense. <laughs> is that your dog yeah. sneezing? <laughs> That's my dog scratching the door. Oh, uh-huh. do you want to let <laughs> him in? Just, yeah, let him in. I know we're running uh, we're running out of time, but I forgot they have a Herc anecdote that I should tell. Oh, go for it. Of course, they all, we always have time for those. So we are shopping for a secondhand couch at the moment and we were knocking over at a house nearby and uh, we were going in to test it out and then Herc was with us and I realised this is effectively Herc's bed. <laughs> should I ask him <laughs> in to sit on it as well? Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't. Because Aww. it's taking a, a dog into a stranger's house and getting him to jump up on his <laughs> Yeah, and then he rubs his balls on your couch and then you go, no, I don't want it. No, uh, yeah. And yeah, then you yeah. just leave. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that 35 times today. <laughs> I don't care. How do you get off? <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. What a lovely way to end this this episode on development aid. <laughs> the idea of her rubbing his balls on some secondhand couches all over Dublin. Her has no balls. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, it's fine then. Yes, it'll be a link to uh, to Quiva's socials and also the Troker website and the, the ways you can get involved in the show notes if you do. And Dokas. And Dokas as well. Those will all be in the show notes. So if you, yeah, feel free to check them out. Um, that's it. I think that's it. We've been kind of running over a little bit. Uh, should, do we just do people need to follow us or all that kind of stuff? We're winding well, down. It feels disingenuous. <laughs> if you don't already follow us and you want to get in touch with us, you can do it that way. Yeah, you can go on to our Twitter. You can go on to our Instagram. You can email us at whatonpolitics at gmail dot com, and you can tell us what you want us to do in our final episodes. Mm, yeah, it's the final countdown. I don't think it's hit me yet. Has this hit, has a sign came with you? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. It feels like the end game. You think? Feels like we're in end game now. Ooh, you this is the, the one out of sixteen million possibilities. <laughs> Where this podcast stops. I've always thought that if you like got rid of the side beard, you'd look quite like like Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch as a, no, I would. I would look like Cumberbatch. It would be an off brand. <laughs> Who are my name? Doctor Strange. Hi, I'm I'm Doctor Weird Fella. How's it going? <laughs> well, he's not a real doctor. <laughs> he got one of those dodgy doctorates for. Or, uh, you went to uh, the MDs. upstairs medical academy as well. <laughs> yeah, and you would look like. Uh, um, the Black Widow. I was waiting for that. <laughs> it's the hips. God, I mean, it's, I always wear that uh, that leather suit. It's, it's and I always hips, fall like I'm suit. about to fall yeah. like I'm posing. Yeah, that's it. It's yeah. the fl- it's the flips you do. Do you remember all them days ago, back in the early episodes, where you used to tell people I was doing backflips? Yeah, well, that you was... did. You did like a whole audio thing around it too. <laughs> Well, that was the live show. I think I, I convinced people who didn't go to the live show, I faked that you had did, done a flip on stage. Yeah. I'll dig that out and I'll play it here. I think <laughs> at the end, that's how we'll end this episode. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> With the footage of you doing a flip on stage. Oh, my back still hurts after that. Oh, man. That's what these last few episodes are just going to be you and I just taking trips down memory lane. It's a pretty dank uh, lane. <laughs> I can't find Google memory lane on my Google Maps. It's, it's, what's, it's, what's the air? You're not missing much. It just smells like PE. <laughs> broken glass it's broken glass it's not it's not it doesn't lead anywhere <laughs> it's a burnt out KFC at the end and no one goes there ever since <laughs>
Anyway. Sure luck, Richie. See you later. Toodaloo. So we did our live show last night. It did. It was fun. We Ooh. met we met fans. We met actual goddamn fans. People that went out of their way in terms of using their time and more importantly their money to come and see us. Mm-hmm. And they thank did. you. Yeah, thank you, you mad men and women. Uh but yeah, yeah, the show is great. We we fought, we had our big fight. Had the fight. You'll have to wait for the episode to actually come out. Yeah. To to hear who won, but we had our big fight. Um and what was the other thing, Steve, that were that was gonna happen? I did a flip. Yeah. Um, someone actually got footage of the flip happening. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just play a little thing. We're here, no, we're, we're, um, we're here at the one on Ponzi's live on Steve's line at the guest flip. Nice. Fucking hell, he's actually going to go for it. I'm not going to do it. No way. Oh, oh shit. No way. <laughs> oh, he's actually going to... Oh, he did a fucking double one. Oh, oh, he did two flips. He did two fucking flips. Holy shit. <laughs> so yeah you did two flips I did two flips that was yeah. I didn't know you had it in no, you I know it's like John Belushi rotund but still very flippable yeah that's it like you, you, you had two pints in your hands and, <gasps> and didn't, didn't spill a drop <laughs> centrifugal force that's and what it is did you, were you impressed the way I actually drank one of the pints before I landed on the ground yeah they were both full when you yeah. started you were just one big motion blur but then when you when you landed one of them was completely empty and, and you were just wiping your mouth Guinness mustache yeah it was amazing well, well, that was that. Re- you really stole the show with that with yeah. that flip. So, well done for that. 